Welcome to the Good Grind Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, and we have got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with Diane Pleva about plant diseases. Yahoo! What an exciting topic for us. Um, but before we get to Diane, we must introduce our co-host with us every single week. We are joined by local food systems and small farms educator Katie Parker in Quincy. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chris. How are you doing today? Ah, it's so cold. <laughs> it is so cold out there. Uh, it's been night. It's been in the teens most of the morning. I think it finally bumped up into the 20s today. I think we have a high of 30 degrees. And then um, we have our training today. And I went and picked up lunch. And the man at the restaurant was like, oh, uh, it's supposed to be in the 50s tomorrow and this weekend. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? So oh, like... no. <laughs> Well, what, I, I what still have the, Midwestern weather. Well, we went from 60. Well, I was in Quincy on Sunday where you are at. It was like 63 degrees. It, it was it was beautiful. beautiful. It was awesome. And then um, came up to Macomb and that north wind just kicked in and it oh, got so cold. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hopefully Ken's staying inside being in the Windy City. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's probably out there in a tank top and shorts with a scarf, you know. On the beach. <laughs> on the beach. Yes. Yeah, he's probably loving it up there. So, um, well, Katie, we're going to be talking about plant diseases today. Did you take many plant pathology classes uh, in school? Um, yeah, you know, actually, uh, I took, it was actually pretty cool. So in my uh, when I was working on my uh, grad, my grad or my master's degree, um, we found some of the first tar spot in Illinois. Uh, and so Santiago, I think that's his, I don't remember what his last name is, but he's a professor on campus and um, <laughs> he had us bring leaves back. And so that's probably a huge no-no. Um, but yeah, <laughs> he's we we told him we were so excited. We're like, we found tar spot in northern Illinois. Uh, and he, he's like, bring me some leaves. And so yeah, um, but I like disease identification. Uh, it's pretty cool. What about you? I did more corn and soybean like disease ID, but um, what about yourself? I know I didn't take any plant pathology classes. Oh, really? So <laughs> So the, our, our guest today, uh, Diane Plowa, whenever she talks to me, I am learning things for the first time. I remember the first time she said, uh, well, let's go ahead and introduce Diane uh, to the show because we got to get her in the in the room here with us. So uh, uh, Diane uh, is the plant clinic director for University of Illinois and also the state IPM coordinator. So Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, we are happy to have you here. So Diane, we're talking about plant pathology today on the show. And I, I was just remarking. So I remember the first time I heard the term oocytes. Is that the correct way? Oh, my seat. Oh, my seat. Okay. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's what I read in my brain. I'm like, yep. are plant pathologists so excited to see this. They're like, ooh, ooh. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Say that I, again. Uh, oh, oh, my seat. And oh, my, uh, it's, it's the same thing as Inra. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> it's oh, oh, rather than ooh, ooh. Or... That's, that's right. I uh, did some of my master's work on oomycetes, and um, they produce a couple different types of spores or a couple different types of resting structures as well, but one's called an oospore. And every time that my husband would read that, like in one of my papers, he would just go, ooh, spore. So yes, we do get that yes. excited. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> exactly, because that's what my brain said. Is like, oh, they just love these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they get excited <laughs> when they see them. Very yes. excited. <laughs> well, Diane, uh, again, we are happy to have you here. Uh, tell us a little bit about where are you located, mm-hmm. and then what what are you doing there where you're located? Absolutely. So I am located. Um, on the Urbana campus of the University of Illinois. And I'm the director and the main diagnostician here at the plant clinic. And the plant clinic, it's an extension program. It's housed within the Department of Crop Sciences. So both of those are in the College of ACES at University of Illinois. And basically we operate as a clearinghouse where people can submit samples, um, usually diseased samples. And uh, we we will uh, incubate them or culture them, or we will sometimes do molecular or serological assays with those samples. And basically what we're trying to do is identify the diseases. Um, Also, if there are insect or arthropod pests, we work with entomologists here on campus. Um, We don't, we can't do any like nutrient testing specifically, but we can, you know, observe the symptoms. And if it's something that looks kind of classic for like uh, nitrogen deficiency in corn, for example, you know, we'll note that on the um, on the form. We talk with the agronomists here on campus. I talk, like I said, with uh, entomologists, with some of the plant uh, pathology professors. So it's really cool because we get to talk with a whole bunch of people that are involved in plant health and plant health management. And then what we do is, you know, we, we, Ultimately, after doing all these tests and examining everything under the microscope, um, we come up with a diagnosis of what's wrong with the sample, and then we write a final report. It uh, details what we found, anything that we might suspect could be you know, impacting the health of the, the plant, and then management recommendations. Because as excited as I get for the actual diseases, most people just want to know how to make it stop. And that's fair. And so we give them, uh, you know, um, re- research-based IPM, integrated pest management-based um, recommendations to help them treat the problem and also ideally help um, a lot of problems. You, you have the, the cause of the problem, but then there may also be some like background environmental issues or some, some environmental stress that may be occurring. And so we also try to just give them kind of good plant care advice in general. And, and so anyone can submit samples to the plant clinic, correct? Yeah, so we receive samples. Um, our permits allow us to receive samples from all across the United States. So we actually get samples from, I want to say we've received samples from like 27 states in the last couple of years, which I thought was fairly impressive. Um, we also receive samples or can receive samples from overseas territories. So we get, um, we usually get one or two samples from like Puerto Rico every year for, for off-season nurseries. And then, um, yeah, we receive samples from within Illinois from researchers, agronomists, we also, and, you know, producers, farmers, but also from um, homeowners, people that, you know, the tree in their backyard starting to look a little weird. Um, a lot of arborist companies, landscapers, um, also a lot of um, uh, like um, urban arborists, like um, city personnel, you know, um, I'm not thinking of the right word, but uh, the, the kind of the grounds crew, you know, things like yeah. that from both on the university, but also from municipalities as well. So yeah, anyone can submit a sample. We look at everything from turf grass to corn to spruce trees. Um, we do receive samples every year that come from either greenhouses or uh, sometimes they're from um, production greenhouses and sometimes they're from ornamental greenhouses. So we occasionally get some, in my opinion, very interesting samples from like botanic gardens. So I've gotten palm tree samples before, which it's a bit of a challenge because 
my background is mostly Illinois centric and we don't have a whole lot of palm trees in Illinois, but you know, we've got good references. And um, at the, the plant clinic is actually the federally designated plant diagnostic laboratory for Illinois. And so as part of that, we are part of this national plant diagnostic network. And so if we start getting samples that are kind of either weird or we suspect that, you know, what we see on corn you, tends to be very similar to what they're going to be seeing on corn in Indiana or Iowa around the same time. And so we work with our counterparts, um, both within the region, but also across the United States as well. So there have been times where I've received a sample, again, of something that I'm not particularly uh, familiar with. And then I might contact, um, in the case of a palm tree, I would be contacting the clinics further south to say, hey, you might have more experience with this than I do. Like, what can you tell me about this? So what can I look for? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a large network that we operate as part of. Um, but yes, we are, we are a resource that's open to everyone. There is a service fee to help us support um, the clinic. Currently, it's around most um, homeowner samples are going to run 18 at most $25. So we try to keep that cost as low as we can because we want it to be accessible to people. Um, but you know, when you're when you're talking about something like a, a mature oak tree, or if you're talking about, um, you know, a tree that that is kind of a focal point in a landscape, or even if you're talking about a lawn that someone, you know, spent all the blood, sweat and tears that goes into successfully seeding a lawn and getting it to establish and look good, um, you know, then we want to make sure that we can help people um, achieve whatever kind of their goals are for their plants. Yes, yeah, I, I would agree. I, the, the plant clinic is always such a fun place to visit. There's so many neat collections of samples and specimens and then you never know who's going to stop by too so that's always always a fun place to visit with all of the samples that you received this year did you notice any trends uh and any popular diseases or uh, occurrences that you received of those samples and then was there anything that surprised you yeah so this year we processed um i want to say it was around like 3,500 samples, I think. I haven't run the, the final numbers for the year, but it was somewhere up around there. Um, and a lot of those samples are soil samples because we do a lot of nematode testing. So that's going to be corn and soybean agronomic um, crops. But then of the, the diagnostic samples, we get a lot of, um, I was surprised when I started at the clinic, we get a lot of, again, spruce trees and oak trees. And my background is corn and soybean disease. Like that was my uh, educational background. So the first time I worked at the clinic and it was like, arborvitae, arborvitae, turf grass, spruce tree. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> um, but it's actually really fun because it means you never know exactly what you're going to get from day to day. Um, we have seen, there have been some trends that we've been noticing and this year kind of fit into the larger trends that we've been noticing, um, both at the at, in Illinois, but also when I talk with diagnosticians across the Midwest, we're seeing increased stress issues. And so we're seeing a lot more problems that seem to be affecting um, mostly uh, woody plants, especially conifers um, or evergreens, but also just, you know, again, our kind of common deciduous plants. Um, we've been having record-setting wet springs. We've been having fairly warm springs. That tends to encourage the growth of some of our fungal pathogens. And if you, the, the general rule of thumb, again, general rule of thumb, is that the earlier in the season that a disease starts, the potential for the greater the potential for damage or for impact because it's got you know all season long to affect the plant if you can push that um, initial infection 
back into the growing season, if you can move that initial infection a couple months into the growing season, that tends to result in reduced um, problems to the plant because the disease has less time before everything shuts down. So as we're starting to see more diseases show up earlier and earlier in the year, we're beginning to see, um, and, and these aren't necessarily all going to like kill everything, but they might make them a little less aesthetically pretty. They may stunt their growth. They may reduce yield. So we're starting to see kind of more things show up in spring and showing up earlier than expected. Um, you know, we also had the polar vortex a couple of years ago. Um, there's been some drought issues, some flooding issues. So there's, there just seems to be more climate instability and that seems to be causing just more stress, especially to our established plants. So again, our, our woody plants are struggling a bit more. Um, and then that sometimes leads to either just die back because of the stress that they're under, but it also makes them more susceptible or prone to infection or infestation um, by diseases and insect pests. And it also makes them, it, it makes the, the plants have a harder time to kind of recover from those issues. Yeah, those environmental causes, especially that drought of 2012, and people would call me then in like 2015, 2016, be yes. like, what's wrong with my tree? It's like, well, it went through a substantial drought a few years ago. And the, the process of losing foliage or canopy uh, is a little bit slower than folks might think. And they didn't quite believe me every time. There was actually... Um, yeah, there was a, a study that came out, I want to say recently, but it was probably two years ago, mm -hmm. um, but it came out fairly recently and it was talking about how we assess drought damage and it was looking at specifically like trees and woody ornamentals. And it was basically saying that in the past, what we would do is we kind of, we would measure a drought by when the drought conditions started through when let's say the first rain came. But what they, what this paper was arguing is that really we should be studying or we should be, um, we should be measuring that that drought by when the drought conditions started through when the trees start growing normally again because it can take a while like you said you know it can take a while for trees to recover from whatever damage that or stress may have occurred during that drought period so just between you know okay well drought conditions started here and the rain started here and therefore the tree was only under stress for that period isn't quite true like physiologically when it comes to addressing um, how some of these adverse environmental conditions can affect our plants. Well, kind of looking, so those are some maybe reoccurring diseases, uh, but in the past, I mean, we have been plagued with things like the chestnut blight, wiped out chestnuts. Um, there have been other diseases coming and going. I have a Absolutely. few circling around in my head. Is there anything that's on your radar that maybe the plant clinic is looking out for and then maybe the regional uh, group of folks you work with? Absolutely. So that's a great question. So thank you for, for asking that because it gives me a platform to, to mention a couple of things I would love <laughs> for listeners to keep an, uh, keep an eye out for. Um, so the first one is coming up in Southern Illinois, especially we're concerned. There's a disease called laurel wilt and it is a uh, disease complex between a fungus and a uh, introduced um, beetle. And it has been causing a lot of problems. It affects trees in the laurel family. And so I think in Southern Illinois, we're probably mostly looking at things like uh, sassafras or spicebush. Um, so far it has not been detected in Illinois, but it has been found in Kentucky and we expect that it will eventually make its way to Illinois. Um, it's obviously something that we're mostly concerned of in or concerned about in our um, 
forested areas. It can be a problem for production if you're in timber production, for example, but it also is just a problem when it comes to, we have the, um, the national forest, the Shawnee um, National Forest in Southern Illinois, and then we have other, you know, state parks, municipal parks, things like that. So we are um, working with uh, um, a couple of people, a couple of the diagnosticians further south, making sure that we have protocols so that we know how to adequately address and be able to identify this disease. So if and when it does show up in Illinois, we're able to kind of catch it right away and get a good idea of the distribution of that disease once it's here. So that's definitely, uh, again, if you're in Southern Illinois, keep an eye out for laurel wilt. And there have been a couple of really nice um, fact sheets that have been put out by a couple of different um, institutions. So that's something that uh, should be fairly um, easy to find accessible. And I can also forward those links um, if, if you provide those as part of the podcast. Yep, we can throw those in the show notes below. Uh, Perfect. Including links to the plant clinic. If folks see something, say on their sassafras, and they're like, I don't know, we will link <laughs> You to uh, Diane's uh, website, the Plant Clinic actually got uh, update facelift. It just did, website. yes. But yeah, I will I will uh, provide some of those fact sheets as well, so you can put them uh, in the show notes because I think that would be great. Um, another thing that I'm I'm curious about, and I'm hoping to be able to test for, but I can't say I am quite yet, but we're working on it. Um, there is a disease called milkweed yellows, and it causes severe stunting of milkweed, um, usually found on common milkweed, possibly on swamp milkweed, possibly some others. But basically, milkweed plants go from being, you know, over six feet tall to being like, I don't know, a foot or a half a foot tall. A foot tall, very, very short. The big thing is that the leaves turn crinkled. Um, they, they're they often lime yellow or lime green or yellow, so they're discolored. The leaves are small, they're crumpled looking, and the plants don't bloom. Obviously a bit of a problem <laughs> when we're talking about plants for our pollinators. Um, all of that, you know, and so it's something that I have, I found in my yard. <laughs> um, and so I started looking up what could be causing this and there it's a phytoplasma, which is a slightly similar to bacterium. Um, and there isn't a whole lot of research about it. There's not a whole lot of information about it um, on the internet. I was able to find a couple of references that referred to it as being found in New York state and also in Ontario, which is great. Um, but that's almost the extent of the information available out there. So there, there isn't a whole lot, but I did find a, uh, a molecular assay that would allow me to test for it because unfortunately this type of pathogen, you can't culture it. Um, we don't have any really good assays for it. And so I found um, a, a, a reference um, in the literature that has a, um, an assay. And so my goal is this winter to order the reagents that I need. I saved some of the milkweed um, from my yard. And my, my goal is to see if I can actually get that assay up and running. Um, I actually talked about this with a couple of master gardener groups earlier in the year. And I did receive a couple samples of suspect milkweed from other people, which is amazing. So um, I would say keep an ear out and if I can get this assay to work, I will be asking people across the state if they notice um, these symptoms in their milkweed to please send samples to us and we will run them for free just so that we get a better idea of where this pathogen may be present in our state because I do think that's important with the, with the focus being put on pollinators so much right now and with the idea that you know, we wanna protect our, our, our monarchs, especially with the milkweed, but you know, other pollinators as well, knowing if there's a, uh, 
and this is essentially a lethal disease out there is, is you know, I think important. So I would, I would be interested to, uh, to keep an eye out for that. And if you, um, if you suspect you might have that, please let me know and I'll give, you know, we'll put my email um, contact information in the show notes as well. Um, and then in Northern Illinois, this is a disease that's actually been around for a little while, but we're kind of seeing the, the range grow is a disease called burr oak blight. And that is a, uh, it's a disease that mostly affects burr oaks as the name implies, um, but it causes a very distinctive wedge shape or V shape tip necrosis of the leaves. So the leaves die back and then you'll, and then it stops at, at like um, at the veins. So you'll get this V shape or wedge shape browning of the tips of the leaves. Um, and it's something that the good news is it is treatable. The bad news is it's kind of expensive. The good news for that is that you only have to treat it um, once and then again, if there's an outbreak. So it's not something that you're looking at having to manage every year, for example. Um, but that's something that it was first detected in Iowa and we've noticed it kind of creeping into Illinois and then creeping further south into mid-central Illinois. So again, if you have burr oaks, that's definitely something to keep, keep an eye out on. Again, I can link some, um, some um, fact sheets that have you know, pictures for scouting. The final disease I just wanna mention real fast, oh, actually there are two more, sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the, the next, second to last um, disease that I'd like to mention is boxwood blight. Um, that's actually, of all the diseases I just mentioned, boxwood blight is the only one that is um, currently regulated. It's regulated at the state level. And it is, again, so far we're only seeing it in Northern Illinois. I don't know that it's established in Northern Illinois because we mostly see it on boxwood plants that have been recently purchased from suppliers. Um, but it is a, again, um, lethal disease, it will it'll kill your plants, it'll make them real ugly in the process. Um, and it's something that it can potentially become established into the soil. It, it infects boxwoods and pachysandra. So um, boxwood blight tends to cause defoliation. So you'll get brown spots, you'll get blackening of the leaves, but then you get defoliation. And that's one of the characteristics we look for because there aren't too many other, there are lots of boxwood diseases and insect yeah. pests. There aren't too many that cause complete defoliation. So if you see that, please send us a sample so that we can check for that. We really want to try and keep it out of the state if at all possible. Um, and then the last one is sudden oak death, not currently found in the state, federally regulated. There was a scare two years ago in 2019. It was detected in the state on nursery stock. Um, as much of that nursery stock as, as possible was destroyed. Some of it was probably sold, um, but so far we have no indication that that pathogen has become established in the state. And there was actually a, a recent um, risk analysis that was done by the, the federal government looking at, you know, based on the climate of Illinois and based on our um, current uh, host species, what's the likelihood that, for, that sudden oak death would become established in the state. And the good news is, is um, that our, our risk level is fairly low. So that's excellent, but we still want to keep an eye out for it because we still don't want it here. Right. Um, so that's, again, something else just to, I don't want to scare people. Again, every indication is that it has not become established, but it's always good to keep in the back of your head. That's good. I, I remember when sudden oath de death raised its its head actually here in Macomb and I believe in Quincy too. Mm -hmm. um, we, we were talking with uh, Diane and, and you had mentioned then, you know, again, we're still trying to evaluate how well can this establish here in the state? And it's good that it's a, a low risk to, to hear that now. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, we are, we were happy to see that as well. Um, but again, still something that we don't want it here if we can help it, so. Are these new diseases or are they just like popping uh, or have they been around for a while and we just haven't spread to our area yet? Yeah, so some of these are fairly new diseases, but a lot of them are spreading due to either um, the movement of plant material or the uh, introduction of new insects. So as I mentioned, laurel wilt, that's an invasive insect that acts as a vector. Um, sudden oak death, to the best of my knowledge, they still don't know where that pathogen originates from. Like they're still not sure where it came from, but it has become um, established in California, Oregon, kind of on the West Coast. Um, so the way that that, that that pathogen spreads, at least in the United States, is mostly through the movement of infected plants. And so nurseries are very heavily regulated to make sure that they're not accidentally, you know, acting as couriers of this pathogen. Bur oak blight is an interesting one because it is a tabakia species, and you may be familiar with tabakia leaf spot on especially on red oaks. If you find a red oak and it's got brown spots on it in autumn, it's probably tabakia leaf spot. It's a very common disease. Um, this is a related species of tabakia. And I think right now the consensus is that the, the pathogen itself is probably native to the Midwest. It's just that again, those very wet, mild springs are encouraging it to develop, encouraging it to maybe be um, more of a problem. You know, in the past, maybe these trees would have gotten a little bit of tip blight and then they would have shook it off, no big deal. But because this pathogen is being able to develop earlier and earlier in the year, it, it's having a larger impact on these trees. And so that um, that's causing the impact to, to increase and also the, the, um, the range of the disease is expanding. The burrow blight is mm -hmm. this might I might have diseases crisscrossed here, but do they have the pustules that reside on the petiole? Yes. And that's how it overwinters? Okay. Yes, yes, they do. Um, unfortunately, it can be kind of hard to find petioles that have overwintered, mm -hmm. depending on you know when you're sampling. Um, but that is one of the ways that we can definitively um identify it because the spores are basically identical to the more common leaf spot uh, tabakia. But yeah, it, it overwinters on the petioles, which makes one of our management techniques for a lot of foliar diseases, which is raking and removing. And I know, yeah. I know people like to leave their, there's a big uh, campaign to, you know, leave the leaves where they fall. And, and that's, that's great. That's fine. And I, I do that in parts of my yard, but if you are having foliar problems, raking and removing your leaves, or even just shredding them, running over them with a lawnmower, anything to just start degrading the leaves so that the pathogens don't overwinter as well is one of our like go-to management techniques. But because this pathogen overwinters in the, essentially in the canopy of the tree, raking yeah. and removing the leaves is not, I mean, it won't hurt, but it's not gonna really do the management that we want it to. So we get a lot of phone calls and questions about plant diseases in our gardens. Where do those diseases or how do they get into the garden? Yeah, so pathogens, there are so many ways in which pathogens <laughs> can enter our lives. Um, <laughs> but there are a couple, so I already mentioned, they can come in on infected plants. And so one thing we always recommend is if you are buying plants, especially if you are looking at perennials, to you know give them a quick one over at the store, make sure that they look good. Um, if you have the space, ideally you quarantine them for a little while. I'll be honest, I live in town. I don't have that big of a yard, so I don't quarantine. Well, 
maybe I unintentionally quarantine because I buy them one weekend and then it takes two weekends before I actually get around to planting them. Um, but, you know, if you have this space, and especially if it's something like boxwood, where we know that there are pathogens that we're really concerned about and we do not want them getting into the environment, if you can, you know, keep it alive, obviously, keep it happy, but maybe don't put it next to another boxwood plant. Um, that's ideal. So pathogens can enter our gardens through bringing in infested plant material. Um, a lot of pathogens overwinter here. So they will overwinter in fallen uh, leaf litter or they'll overwinter in crop residue. So one thing that you're probably very familiar with, Katie, is you know the, the, the balance between um, kind of traditional tillage and then conservation tillage. And there are a lot of benefits to conservation tillage or to you know, letting the, the stubble stay in the field all winter in terms of reducing erosion. It does tend to increase disease pressure. That doesn't mean that it's not worth it. It's just something to be aware of you know, when you're planning your next year. Um, and so a lot of diseases can overwinter here. I tell people to think of, if you have infected plant material, think of it like the pathogen is wearing a big poofy coat. So anything you can do to shred that coat even if, again, even if it's just going over it with a lawnmower can really help. There was a study from, it was years ago, but there was a study that showed that in, an, in apple orchards, um, when you have apple scab, the disease will, the pathogen overwinters in leaves. So again, one of the management recommendations is rake and remove. Well, if you have a large apple orchard, that is maybe not the most practical of advice. So what they did was they um, they just took like a mulching lawnmower and went over all the leaves that had fallen and just shredded them. And then they left them there. They didn't remove them, they just shredded them. Um, and they had about a 50% reduction in infection the next year, which I think is really impressive considering you didn't actually remove any of the pathogen. You just shredded up some leaves and called it a day. Um, so anything you can do to reduce um, the, the, the plant residue, if you know that you're dealing with, with, with plants that had a disease the season before. Um, I, again, I leave my, my coneflower heads up all winter long because I think they're pretty and also to give the birds something to do, I guess, in winter. Um, you know, and, and I, leave, I leave a lot of, of plant residue until spring to remove. But if you start to notice that you're having more problems with particular types of plants or in a particular part of your garden, then trying to do some fall cleanup can be really beneficial. Um, some of our pathogens do not overwinter here. They're kind of like annuals, but they will actually travel in the wind really well. So there is a large wind current that comes from the Gulf of Mexico and comes basically straight up the Midwest. Like we are right in its path. And um, to plant pathologists, it's known as the Puccinia pathway because that is one of the ways that rust diseases, which are in the genus Puccinia, will travel from the southern parts of the United States where the, the pathogen can overwinter up into all the way up to Canada. Like it'll travel just straight up the middle of the United States. Um, so diseases can, can travel in a lot of different ways. Um, they can also be vectored. So they can come in on insects. We talked a little bit about that with laurel wilt. There are other diseases that, that the insect vectors are really critical for. Um, this is a corn disease, but there's a disease called Stewart's wilt that is vectored by the corn flea beetle. And this pathogen actually overwinters in the corn flea beetle. And so if we have really cold temperatures, we tend to see less of the disease the following year because more of the beetles have died. Um, so you know, there are just, there are again, so many different ways. But I think the, the thing to keep in mind is that there are some things we can't control. I can't con control 
when or how hard or you know from what direction the wind blows. But I can control what plants am I bringing into my garden? Do they look good? Um, you know, have I have I double checked? And again, you're not talking about going through every plant with a little magnifying glass and examining every leaf hair. That would get a little tedious, I think. Um, maybe not the best for your mental health. Um, but you know, <laughs> look at them. I, I tend to be of the oh, it's pretty. I'll put it in my cart and I'll buy it and I'll take it home. And it's like okay, well. Nah, take a step back and make sure that it looks good at the store and you know so you can do little things like that um and again things like doing some fall cleanup or even just again mulching your leaves or with the, the lawnmower even if you're not really into like raking and removing that organic matter from your landscape those can all help mm -hmm. my first exposure to a plant pandemic so to speak is uh, working as a student worker at the siu carbondale greenhouse I walk in and one of the houses, they're uh, quarantined. Uh, I guess a student worker who smoked cigarettes uh -huh. was handling plant material and introduced tobacco mosaic buyers. Yep. And it totally wiped out half the plants in the greenhouse there. So that was a learning event to wash your hands before handling plant material. Absolutely. And tobacco mosaic virus is actually, it's really cool. And I'm not going to get into it because we would be here for hours. Um, <laughs> but a couple of cool things about tobacco mosaic virus. First of all, it was the first virus discovered, like total, not really? just the first plant, oh, wow. but yeah, the first, the first virus was tobacco mosaic. And secondly, um, yeah, it's incredibly stable. So it can mm -hmm. survive the, the curing process and it can survive, you know, being lit on fire and inhaled and like, it, and so it's um it's actually very common for it to be spread by people who are smoking while working in the fields or while working in a greenhouse or a production facility. So a lot of um that's one of the reasons that a lot of greenhouse production facilities banned smoking both within but even like on the grounds. They just they did not want that potential um that that potential pathogen source. Absolutely. So contagious. <laughs> <laughs> good thing it the, the good news is it doesn't impact us. So mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> So Diane, we, we talked about how pathogens can move and even get vectored into the gardens in some way. Is there anything we can do to reduce that risk? Uh, we kind of alluded to that, I think, uh, before and talking about plant selection here and there, but you know, what can a gardener do to help minimize that disease pressure? Well, I would say that if you want a garden that is devoid of plant diseases, you're probably looking at plastic or brick. Uh, pla Plasticaceae <laughs> family. I know yes, that exactly. One now, there so. you go. Um, but a couple of things to keep in mind are that plant diseases are here and they're part of nature. And I, again, I'm, I'm a plant pathologist, so I find diseases fascinating and beautiful. But there are some diseases that I think we could learn to appreciate maple tar spot, for example, it just makes your tree look like a Dalmatian. How is that a bad thing? <laughs> um, you know, right? um, so, I mean, there, there are some, sometimes I think that people worry that, you know, the first spot, they're like, oh, it's a problem. And it's, it, it may, it might be, but if, if you notice that, you know, your oak tree gets brown spots every year, but it comes back every year and it looks fine, then the brown spots probably aren't a huge problem, frankly. And if you're ever worried, you can always send samples to us. You can contact your local master gardener, um, horticultural help desk. You know, there are a lot of uh, resources available out there. Um, in terms of helping to minimize the, the risk of plant diseases, the big thing is, and and I'm glad that you asked this question because the, the answer is that the best thing you can do is before you install plants. And that is a hard thing to hear when you're talking to someone who has a garden whose plants are looking problematic. Um, 
but you want to make sure that you are, you know, picking the right plant for the right spot. So a couple of things we, we talked a little bit about how um, a lot of our plants are showing stress issues. So make sure that you're picking, you know, a plant that's going to thrive in the location that you put it. I love peonies. My backyard is fairly shady. Those two things don't mix very well. <laughs> Um, you know, so I'm going to have to either make some sunlight or I'm going to have to put peonies in a different spot or I'm going to have to pick a different type of plant. But, you know, so, so kind of set yourself up for success. Um, there are certain plants that are not particularly well adapted to the Illinois climate. We get blue spruce trees at the clinic every year and every year they have like the same problems and they're not really more susceptible to these fungal diseases than other spruce trees. It's just that in Illinois, they're not very well adapted, they're under stress, and then that makes them more susceptible. So if you're looking to install spruce trees, really look into something like Norway spruce or white spruce. If you really want that Colorado blue spruce, you can have it, but it may be either shorter lived or you may be doing more fungicide sprays or you know, just keep in mind that there may be some kind of additional upkeep to that tree. Mm -hmm. um, when you're planting, especially things like vegetables, Make sure you're actually spacing them appropriately. A lot of our diseases are um, encouraged by humid uh, weather or, or moisture, you know, uh, freestanding moisture on the leaves. So anything you can do to increase air circulation tends to help. So, and I, I'm so guilty of this. You know, you buy a flat of whatever it is, and you have a bed to put them in and so you start spacing them out appropriately and then you get to the end of the bed and you still got four plants and you just kind of shove them in because what what are you going to do with four salvia nothing so you just kind of stick them in wherever you can um and you know for an annual that's maybe okay but again when you're looking at things like some of our perennials or again vegetables where we want production they're you know we're planting them for a, a reason um that's not just aesthetic then making sure that they're spaced appropriately, making sure that things like tomatoes are actually either caged or trellised or something to get them up off the ground. Um, doing things like that is really critical because it not only helps reduce the, the spread of disease, it also, again, increases the plant's health, so it makes them less susceptible to some of these diseases. And finally, one of the things you can do is look for resistance because resistance is one of the best ways we have to combat plant diseases. And so making sure that, again, especially with things like vegetables or annual fruits, that you're actually looking at something that has resistance to our common diseases. Um, there are also a lot of perennial ornamentals that have started to be bred with more and more resistance to them. And you can usually find like field uh, trials that show certain plants and, and kind of their relative um, resistance ratings for common diseases. And those can be really helpful um, when you're picking picking plants to install in your garden. So the big the big takeaway though is that you know when you are planning your garden, whether it be perennials or the annuals that you plant, you know make sure that you you do a little bit of research beforehand and then plant you know just even according to the stake that comes with the plants that says plant these every 18 inches. I mean, you could probably get away with 16 inches, but you don't want to try and put them like every 10, <laughs> for right. example. Um, so yeah, just, just kind of doing what you can when you install them to make sure that you're kind of setting them up for success. Now, what about if we already have disease? Is there any way we can stop it or keep it from spreading? 
So it's really going to depend on the pathogen and on the disease and on the host. Um, there are a number of different things we can do. So there are different types of control. And we talk about this um, in, like I said, when we send out our, our reports, we will give people uh, management recommendations. And we give people all the management recommendations that have been um, uh, that are fact-based that we can. And then we leave it up to the individuals to choose what's going to be effective for them and what's gonna work for them. Um, so there are things that we can do that's called cultural control. And that I like to say that that's kind of how we interact with the plant. So it's all those questions like, do you water it? When do you water it? How do you water it? How often do you water it? Do you fertilize it? When did you prune it? Like all those questions are cultural control. And um, you know, so this is why when you'll read people will say, um, it's recommended that you water like lawns, for example, in, in the morning, and you don't want to wait until right before the sun goes down, because then you have all that water sitting on the plants, not evaporating, not, and, and yeah, just sitting on those leaves, which then can again, encourage the spread of certain types of diseases, for example, um, bacteria spread really well through water, some fun, most fungi like very humid environments. So even things like watering plants at ground level, as opposed to watering them from above, can be really helpful. I'm lazy, so I tend to water my plants from above because that's where I'm standing. But again, if I have a certain plant or a patch of my garden that's beginning to look a little weird, that's one of the things you can do is to change your, your watering habits. Um, another thing is, you know, ideally plants are hopefully spaced appropriately because again, there's not a whole lot we can do once they're installed, other than I guess dig them up and move them around. Um, but that gets harder as they get bigger. Mm -hmm. um, but if plants are spaced too closely, is there a way that you could prune them to try and again, open up some of that canopy, open up um, the, the plant density and let air flow a little bit better. And then finally, there are fungicides. There is um, chemical control. And so there are there are pesticides that can be used. Again, usually with, with plants, we're looking at fungicides since fungi tend to be the most common type of plant disease out there. Um, and that's gonna range everything from a, uh, a fungicide spray that you do when you notice the disease occurring. Some of them are going to be preventative that need to be applied in spring. So if you suspect a disease problem, we always recommend that you get it identified if possible because there are a lot of diseases that don't show up until summer, but the applications in summer will not be effective. So all you're doing is wasting money and putting chemicals into the environment that aren't gonna do anything, which is not really helping anyone. Um, so there are a number of diseases that if you want to manage them with pesticides, they need to be sp sprayed in spring as a preventative. And that's fine, you know, as long as the, the pesticide is being used according to the label, as long as it's going to be effective against the problem, then that's not a problem. We just want to make sure that they're being used appropriately. And that again, people aren't spending money and time to, to basically do nothing, because that's, that's just a bummer. Uh, you know, that, yeah. that doesn't help anyone. Um, so those are kind of the big things you can do. Also make sure that you sanitize your, your um, pruning equipment or any of your gardening equipment. Ideally, you would sanitize pruners between every cut or every other cut. That's insane, at least for most of us, I think. Um, if you can, more power to you. Um, but I would say at least sanitize them between trees if possible. You know, if you're doing like a whole hedgerow, I don't know, maybe every five feet or so, you know, just kind of what, again, what is practical? What's going to work for you? Um, because for most of us, I would say our gardens are 
places where we find enjoyment, relaxation. They may be um, they may be a, a source of income, you know, depending on what the purpose of the planting is. But they should not be places of stress. <laughs> so anything we can do to try to reduce that and not drive ourselves crazy, I think, is helpful. My very first plant question was on ornamental pear. They had a dead branch and they're like, what do I do? How do I prune it out? I'm like, oh, you just prune it out, prune it out. You know, it'll be fine. And then they made a couple other pruning cuts. And with uh, about a month and a half, they said the tree was dead because it was fire blight. Yeah. <laughs> this is bacterial news, disease. The good news, a couple things there. The good news mm -hmm. is, first of all, the tree probably already had it. So, you know, you didn't, you didn't cause huh. the problem. <laughs> I felt <laughs> a, guilty for so long. It's a very common problem. The other thing is that most ornamental pears are kind of awful trees. Mm -hmm. They are. So, so yeah, we get, we get ornamental uh, pear samples, especially the, the older varieties, the Bradford and the Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think aristocrat is, is from that line as well. And, and some of those, and, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll diagnose the, the issues. It's often fire blight. We'll tell them how to manage it. Fire blight's very hard to manage, frankly. And then we'll say, but you know, these, these trees, they have a lot of other issues. So you might just want to consider a replacement option. So that is another thing that we definitely um, try to help people with is that, you know, plants are like all of us, they are transient. And so we, there are times where the, the, the management of the disease might be either so difficult or costly or time consuming. Um, with things like evergreens, if you have a needle cast disease where a bunch of needles have fallen, those needles will not regrow. And so you can have, and this happens a lot again with our Colorado spruce, for example, this is also a problem on some of our pine trees, like our, our um, excuse me, Austrian and like Scots pine. You can have these diseases that affect the needles. Those needles die. Those needles will never regrow. Now, hopefully new growth will appear at the end of the branches. And so, you know, you'll start to get some more green needles appearing on the tree. But if it's a very large tree, I mean, it could take a decade or so for that tree to be aesthetically pleasing again. So at that point, it's kind of like, if you want to do that, that's fine. But you could also maybe consider a replacement. Yes. So, yeah. Well, Diane, that was a lot of fantastic information, a crash course in plant pathology. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate absolutely. your time today. Yeah, well, absolutely. There wasn't even a mention of a disease triangle. <laughs> oh, wow, no. I didn't get that in. Now, I, I failed as a, as a plant pathologist. I feel All right, like no, every I'm going to single... slap that graphic up. <laughs> <laughs> every single disease um, presentation ever. <laughs> It's true. Mm -hmm. it, it's a great <laughs> basic way, it. but we talked about all the aspects of the disease triangle. Correct. We talked about the mm -hmm. pathogens, the host, and the environment <laughs> that's required Correct. for that disease to occur. Yeah. Yep. So we've checked the box now. We're, we, yeah, we did, it. we did it. Thank you, Katie. You, you encouraged us and reminded us to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. But thank you, Diane, for uh, sharing all the information with us. It was great. Mm -hmm. And it's good to see you, Chris. Hopefully we can do this again next week. Oh, we shall do this again next week. We're going to be talking with Chelsea Hartbach all about nematodes. Oh, my goodness. I think Diane might be getting a little happy there, too, with it. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be chatting with Chelsea all about these, whatever these things are, swimming around in the soil, uh, affecting our, our row crops and also sometimes our ornamentals. So looking forward to that. Listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing.